Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. All right, guys. Uh, today, we are doing something a little different. Um, and I'm very excited about it because I'm not going to lie. I've missed my dear friend a lot. We may have a moment. We're going to have a moment in a minute. But one of my friends and good people of my life, who I also had the pleasure of working with at the Department of Juvenile Justice here in Georgia, um, and we are going to do conversation. Easygoing conversation, yes, yes. So, um, everyone, I want y'all to meet my friend, Courtney Jones. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> uh, my name is Courtney Jones. I, like she mentioned before, I do work with the Georgia Department of Juvenile Justice and work with placing kids um, throughout the state, making sure they receive residential treatment care if they should need it. Go. Um, and Courtney, if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit of your educational background and how you kind of got into this field? Sure. Um, I started out, uh, actually, I was supposed to be a teacher. Um, I tried to do that and it did not go well. I don't know how teachers teach and discipline at the same time. So I quickly changed my major after volunteering one summer and I said, nope, not for me. So I have a <laughs> bachelor's degree in psychology and human services. And after that, I got a master's degree in school counseling. I also have a minor in African-American studies, but I don't know if that really counts since I didn't graduate from that school. <laughs> hey, it counts. I Perfect. think so. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, social work, you couldn't, in my school, you couldn't get a minor. Ah. And you could get a secondary or an emphasis. So I was, I think, two three courses away from having another major in religion. Oh, wow. So it was really weird. So I kind of say that's my minor, mm -hmm. even though technically I couldn't have a minor, right. which is still weird to me. I don't know why. But yes, um, and I know just so for you guys to know, Courtney and I actually met because we both interviewed for a promotional uh, position at DJJ. There was two spots open, and she and I were the ones that received those spots. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Who am I going to work with? Who's coming in with me? And I think it was the second day. Was it the second day you and I actually started the job? Yeah. We went out and about and we figured out we were pretty much soulmates. Oh, no, I knew day one. I told you <laughs> oh. day one that you needed your own reality show. This she did say me that. girl was just like, just full of life, energy. And just a lot of to energy. Talk to. So loved her day one. <laughs> I, it was more anxiety more than energy. So I couldn't no. stop talking. I couldn't tell. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> good. I was like, this girl's gonna hate me by the end of this. This woman is gonna be like, get out of my car. Get out of my car right now. <laughs> um, but we did have some good bonding moments. And just for context, uh, the area that Courtney and I worked in were definitely was definitely the major parts of like of North Georgia. So she covered all of the small surrounding counties while I covered the major cities. So I was a city girl, yes. Um, and one of the things that we often talked about during our many, many like relief sessions, I guess we can call it, um, would be the fact of where we were in our field, how we got into our field, and how we can make change. And I think 
what we bonded most over is that we do, we would come out talking about loving our kids and these kids were ours. Whether or not we spent one-on-one time more than an hour or never at all. Like even if we just read all of their files and understood where they were coming from or trying to understand where they were coming from, we would claim them as our own, our kids. And she and I went through a lot of heartbreak, but also a lot of encouraging times. Um, and of course, a lot of frustration about what it looks like to be in public service. Would you agree with that, Courtney? 100%. Right. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this and I wanted to talk about this, not only to have her on the show because I miss her dearly. And also, you know, I needed my one work wife to meet the other work wife. (laughs) (laughs) This is a ploy. Um, But the fact that we have been talking about the justice system look like today and where have we gone wrong and how do we fix it? How do we fix it all? And what does it look like to try to fix it? And one of the big components to that is at-risk teens and at-risk youths. And um, for myself, I got into the field after I left the Department of Family and Children's Services investigating child abuse because I wanted to try to do something that would impact for the future, if that makes sense. Coming in after the fact, trying to keep a family together didn't seem like it was working. So for me, I wanted to try a little more differently with youths and trying to prevent and help them have a better start or a better life or a turnaround or at least the very least someone to support them. Um, And I think with that, one of the things that go through my mind, and Courtney, I want you to tell your side of this as well, is as we're seeing all of the brutality that is happening, the questions about power versus empathy, power versus uh, de-escalation, and also what it means to hold people accountable is kind of that question of how do we do that on a bigger scale, but also on the smaller scale? Because if you're in social work, I know you guys know this, we talk about the macro versus micro practices. And I think that's part of the conversation that we're not having when we talk about defund the police whether or not abolition of police is uh, even possible or how it's possible, or talking about what it looks like to break down one power scope or we'll say white supremacy in an area that is infiltrated with a lot of biases and prejudices that's in there. But with that, Courtney, I wanted to ask you as a person who, how long have you been with DJJ? I know it's been... A minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I started in 2012. Um, this was after me trying to get uh, unsuccessfully getting a job with the school system because becoming a school counselor, you know, that's a position where someone either retires or dies. There is no in between. Right. <laughs> it's that dream job. What else can I do with this that can really um, affect the same population? DJJ was a perfect fit. Basically, we're working with the same clientele. Um, the kids that would come in um, in the school counselor's office are the same kids that you would be dealing with with DJJ. So I was there since 2012, started as a probation officer, and then moved into my current position. When you were talking about how you got into this to work with that population, um, I was the same way. So one of the things I did want to ask you is, did you get pulled in during the initiative when they were trying to bring in counselors and social workers as well? 
because that's how I, I got involved. They were trying to go away from punitive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so at that time, I was working as a probation officer at DeKalb County. This is before I obtained my master's degree. So that was part of the whole restorative justice um, model in which they were trying to get back to um, community policing, um, bringing more social workers in, and really getting the kids not to see us as police officers, but more um, kind of the same vein as uh, uh, defects as case workers. So not your probation officer, but your case worker. And the focus of that was for us to be just basically just that, a case worker, the liaison of putting all of those services together. So we were uh, counseling, we were um, getting them to, um, to their after school group sessions, um, making sure that they are participating in school, making sure they're getting the family counseling, all of those things combined into one. So yeah, I was definitely there for that. There was plenty of um, in-house uh, trainings, conferences, and it was awesome in that they were focused on that, but it failed in that they did not tie everything together. Like we have the every year, the um, Systems of Care Conference, which is a great conference. It gives us a lot of ideas, but we don't have the community resources to do what we're talking about. Um, or we have the community resources, but they're not in the places where we need them. We, there's so much out there, but there a lot of people will not or cannot travel to the places that we need it the most, like those country and those uh, our North Georgia kids and you know Middle Georgia kids. They suffer because there really aren't any alternative counseling or programs that can assist them through their crisis. And that's kind of where we are. And I know they kind of, they had brought me in and I was what they call the probation parole uh, specialist. And I know that's what your title as well. And it, the, at this time, it was during the initiative to bring in more caseworkers and more counseling level of people to do this type of management. And I actually, I, when I started my job, I loved it. I loved interacting with the kids. I felt so passionate about sitting with them. And of course, because I had a background in the Department of Family and Children's Services, I had a lot of those dual cases where they may be a part of both uh, DFACS and DJJ. I, also, I had the mental health caseload, essentially. So any child that might have some type of mental health diagnosis, I typically would have them on my plate. I also had parents who were... <laughs> who had mental health diagnosis on my caseload too, because that was a whole different <laughs> scenario. But I, I was one of the things that I've always been fascinated by in my field, in our fields, essentially, and especially with DJJ, and I'm not really sure what the breakdown is because I couldn't find any actual statistics um, in that. I do know that in social work, uh, women make up 81% of the workers, of social workers in the nation. And then counselors is 69.9% of women in counseling. And then if you look at the others, like human services field or social services field that may not have a social work degree or a counseling degree, that's 82% of them are women as well, which I found fascinating. Um, and not so surprising because if, we, if you've been in the field long enough, you see it. That's who you work with typically. Um, and not again, not so surprising. Uh, for those who climb their way up to the ladder, it's typically men. And whether they were there to begin with or not, um, in nonprofits alone, even though in the nonprofit world, 
let me find my statistics, uh, 73% of the employees are women, but only 45% of the women become CEOs of these nonprofits. And if an organization has a budget of at least 21 million, only 21% are run by female CEOs, which says a lot to me. I don't know if that says much to y'all. Um, and then it's also one to note that on the organizational boards for nonprofits, only 14% of the women, women of color on the boards, which I find really disheartening and sad because obviously, if you look at the statistics, the people who know what's going on are women and most likely women of color. Now, I did find a different statistic saying that social workers, because, you know, I'm all about my social workers, <laughs> do make up of mainly white women, which I, I, I'm baffled by, honestly, <laughs> because the majority of people that I've worked with are typically women of color. And for the metro area, for Georgia, it's typically black women. Mm -hmm. And Courtney, I, I wanted to have a dialogue because you and I have talked a lot about why someone gets into this field. Annie, we've, made, we've had an episode previously about why anyone gets into this field. And typically it's because of personal trauma, personal experiences, and a desire through, because of empathy, because of that level of ex personal experience that builds that empathy to want to make change. And uh, would that be why you would say you are a part of this? Yes. Um, I've always known that I was going to work with kids, even as a kid. Children have naturally just flocked to me. I don't know why that is. True. I can be in the grocery store right now, and a little kid will walk up to me and do like this, pick me up. It's like motion. I don't know this kid. It's kind of concerning. It's very weird, but it happens. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I always knew I was going to work with kids. Um, so when the teaching thing didn't work out because of my lack of patience <laughs> with the discipline part, um, this was perfect because I'm all about discipline and being able to do it in a helpful vein. I don't believe in cursing, yelling to get my point across that kids and they get enough of that at home. So um, this fit very well with what I wanted to do. The problem is always going to be money. Um, with your, those statistics that you were talking about, the men are the CEOs because of the whole money situation. Men are still promoted based upon the fact that they are the breadwinners of their family. Um, and, and women aren't. We just aren't. And however, a lot of people, I think, go into social work uh, because it is such a, it is a field in which you can build your family. Like if you were fam very family oriented, you can take your time off and then come back. That is one of the um, good things about being a governmental employee. Your time is your time. So if you've earned the time, you use the time and you can come back. So I think there's pros and cons to why people choose to be in this particular field, whether it is they want to build their family, they don't necessarily care about the money because their partner um, makes more than enough and they truly have a desire to help people. And this is the best way that you can do that in multiple levels. It started for me um, being a kid working, um, living in a low income area. We received a lot of programs, um, people coming in, whether that be Hands On Atlanta or um, there were other volunteer groups that would come in and work with us. I also was a part of Upward Bound program, which is a federally run program, which um, 
took at-risk youth and encouraged them to go to college, which was a treat for me because that meant every Saturday I got to be on the Morehouse campus and be surrounded by all these wonderful, glorious, gorgeous young men. (laughs) (laughs) And, and you know, um, the summer program was so awesome also because they took us on a college tour. We got to see campuses and, and go have the dorm experience and it was all free. So when I started thinking about, you know, man, that's something I really would like to do. I would like to do this for someone else who may not have the opportunity because I wasn't a troubled kid. I was not in the principal's office. I was not seeing the school counselor all the time, but I needed help. And I was one of the very few that actually got it that didn't just slip through. I can think of many of my classmates that were kind of in the same boat as me, but they never received those things. But once I saw free, and then you're going to give me a martyr card to be there? Oh, I'm there. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, you like your free. I know you were the first person <laughs> I've met. You're like, it's my birthday week. I got to download all my free things. There you go. <laughs> it, it is all about me, which my birthday and every birthday should be a national holiday in my mind. I celebrate it like that. Half Christmas is going to kick off. <laughs> it is. Oh, yeah. Her birth, that's how she's like, my birthday is in between halfway to Christmas. And I was like, oh, okay. June 25th. Six months before Christmas and six months after. You can't beat that. All right, so we're going to do a happy birthday. Everybody's going to send you happy birthdays. Remember that, listeners. (laughs) We have some more of our conversation with Courtney, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. Absolutely. I think that was one of the big questions as we've seen. I I know we were talking about just ability and care. And that's kind of one of the things that they talked about as to why men aren't being social workers or going into that field. Um, And by the way, in the 1980s, over 30-something percent uh, of social workers were men. As of this last few years, it went down to 10%. And the big question about why And again, we talked about money. And by the way, I had to have three jobs at one point in order to live by myself in Atlanta. Um, And I know many people from like New York and California scoff in DC, like, oh, you don't have to pay, you know, your cost of living is not that much. I was like, yeah, well, in comparison to what we're being paid, (laughs) it is. Um, And it took me to that. And I'm still paying pretty low now for my apartment. at almost 40 and trying to figure out how to do this. And I finally have landed a job and it had to be away from social work. Like that's the only way I could do it and or any kind of social services in general. But that was one of the things like, okay, maybe it's money. And that could be it. But one of the bigger conversations is that men are less likely to seek help like therapy, like assistance in that way. So that toxic masculinity holds them back. So therefore, why would you want men to help other women, maybe, you know, and that's kind of that level of like, okay, who helps whom? Well, of course, if that's a female, a female should help them. Maybe that's that conversation. On top of that, there's also that conversation that social services and social care is more like caretaking, as you said, Um, uh, giving and providing, which is very maternal and seen as feminine. So therefore, men don't want to be a part of that culture. I got to be a man. 
So that's kind of one of those levels of like, okay, we get you. But that's really, really toxic and really unhealthy. It is. I think if we approach it a different way, this is not about, if we take away the social work part of it and put more mentor coaching, those are terms that they can get with. Right. <laughs> that's, right. Those are the things that they like. Well, this is how we pander. And, so, and then yeah. I know a big part of that, which again, kind of enables this toxic masculinity, this misogynistic idea is saying uh, being a man. So a lot of our mentoring programs talk about men being men. Yes. But in order to get more men in it, we have to rebrand this thing is what I'm saying. Right. If we want men to be more caring and more open and to really be there for this younger generation and get them out of that toxicity, we have to uh, do a a new campaign (laughs) so far as to lure them in. And the money has to change and it has to be um, a way for us to let them know that, hey, this is not just about wiping noses and patting people on the back. We're really talking about the future of our country. We have to change how we talk to one another, how we communicate with one another. And if we can't do that right now with our young people, we're having, we're going to have another generation that's lost because the way in which people talk and interact with each other is so based on non-reality. It's scary the way kids think things are supposed to be based on what they see on TV, what they see on scripted reality TV shows. And trying to get them to understand, no, that's not real. It's like, it's very hard to jerk them out of that because they're bombarded by it, um, whether it be through TV, internet, phone. They have it coming at them at all different angles. So we really do need that male perspective. We need strong male voices to be able to lead and show our kids that this is what you need to be. This is what truly makes you not just a man, but to be a successful adult contributing to society. And I think that's the conversation is, it's not so much that we're, it's unfortunate that we have to rebrand. Shouldn't we be able to break down the system in general and say, being kind and being compassionate is not a gender thing. And by the way, to be a strong man doesn't mean you have to be physically or emotionally strong. It just means that you are reliable in there. You know, and that's kind of that conversation that needs to be broken down is we shouldn't be catering to the toxic masculinity. We should be breaking it down and redoing the mindset, not only on men and young boys, but the whole system in itself, which is because exactly what you're saying, when we were in social work, when I was in a course, I remember, and I've talked about this before, I remember a professor saying specifically to the men in our class, which I think was a handful, maybe three or four saying, you guys are going to get jobs faster than any other person here. You guys are going to get money than any other person here. So you need to stick with it. Like, that was kind of the painter. And I was like looking around going, and, it, and she wasn't saying it as in, good job, guys. She was just saying it as a fact. It is what it is. And I think you and I have seen that many a times. Men who play the game, and what I mean by that, play the white supremacist game and being, you know, in the middle line and sucking up and not make too many headways, get promoted very, very quickly and fast. Would you agree with that? Uh, I don't know about the white supremacy part. It's just really about the the boys club. It it really is just being able to play your position until a, a, a job opens up. Not just men, anyone just promoting their friends. Like right, we have right. a lot of Network turnover. Game. 
Yes, a lot of turnover in DJJ. And when we have someone new, we know they're going to bring in such and such and such and such to this position and that position and that position, which is fine to have your own team. But the nepotism, that's the word I was looking for. There's a lot of nepotism in that. And it really prevents um, people who have been there, who really know what the needs are for the organization to move forward, to move up and truly move the uh, organization where it needs to be whether it be male or female, but that happens a lot. Right. And I think what I'm saying about white supremacy is literally playing the game, whether in the state of Georgia, we know who our boss is, and that's the governor. Oh, no, neither. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and that's hey, I, the lot, I, idea is you don't say too much. You don't say too loudly. We've definitely had coworkers say, like, this is somewhat racist. You're treating this child like this, whatever, whatnot, and they get shut down very quickly and being like, shh, you can't say that. So as long as you play the middle of the game, like playing the middle of the road game in where you have to, you can't acknowledge too many wrongs. Because if you acknowledge too many wrongs and you're showing spotlights, and and I know for me, when I worked with in the metro area, one of our county judges um, stated that, yes, black, young black boys are actually targeted in our area. And 90, somewhere between 90 to 95% of the arrests and the cases were actually black boys. Like it was that significant. And we had, they had the highest arrest uh, record and detention record in the state. That is so correct. that conversation in itself was part of the whole, okay, don't say it too loudly. We don't want to say that too loudly. Like who is being targeted? And therefore, when you see, and I, you know, you know who I'm talking about, our, our buddy who gets a little too loud sometimes and is real quick to call people out. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get promoted very well. Mm-mm. But the people who play the middle line, play that middle game, and oftentimes it is to ignore those underlying issues. And, and I know the last year and a half that I worked there, they had just started to talk about diversity and transgender kids and how to work with them. And the pushback that was there was really, really disheartening. Mm. I know you had to keep me in line so I wouldn't yell at people. <laughs> <laughs> a few times, but that's kind of that mentality of like, how do we break this down in the system? And we kind of went away from the original point of women in this industry. But that's kind of the whole breakdown is there is a built up system that it's hard to let go of and obviously hard to let go of if we're diverting to another tactic instead of reinvesting into what is working. Right? You know what I'm saying? I got you. Um, With that, just so far as with women being in this field and and with the whole racial aspect of it, you do kind of have to play your position. You do have to be aware of what your leadership line looks like um, before you make any suggestions on what to do and how to move forward. Because the, the fact of the matter is nothing that we're saying right now hasn't already been said before. They know what the needs are. They know what we're going through. They know what the data is because we submit it to them every month. The the fact of the matter is, how are we going to tweak the budget to meet those needs? How do we justify moving the money from here to here? And do we have enough people to make that happen? That's where I see it the most. 
Um, I'm not fearful of saying anything so far as what I I believe that I need for my kids. It's just tiring saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you get burned out. So everyone knows what my my investment date is because I tell them all the time. I don't know what I'm going to be doing come January 2022, but I won't be here because I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I am done. I am done. I'm just burned out. And, And I try to... And even when with saying that, I do try to recruit um, people into the organization that I think that would do well there. I say, hey, if you're looking to further your education, if you're looking to do this, this, and this, this is the perfect position for you. Because not only are you getting the um, experience that you need, it's stable money. It might not be a lot of money, but it is stable money. You can work on your retirement. You can work on these things here and you still have time to work on your master's, da, 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 have your kids, whatever. It's flexible in that. But do not come into this if you don't have a true love for people and children. If you don't have that at the core, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up bad. You're going to curse out the wrong somebody and it's going to all fall on you. So those are, you know, just kind of where we are with it so far as being aware of who you are, where you work, and what the leadership line looks like. Yeah. So you just have to, you know, pick your battles. And that's that's definitely the conversation. And um, and before we go, I did want to, because you, you were talking about it, and I want to talk a little more about it, about funding and about what budgeting looks like. Um, and we know it on a smaller scale. We know it on a state scale. Mm-hmm. And I will say we got to see it a little more than most people in there because we did handle the budget uh, a lot more than others have. But the, one of the things that I have, we have been thinking, and as we talk about all of uh, the things that are happening in the country and things that are trying to be revamped, or people are trying to find uh, accountability within the government, within the systems all over the country. And one of them, again, we talked about defunding the police and what does that look like? And it sounds so harsh at the beginning. And I know everybody's like, what, is, what we need police, we need law enforcement. Not everybody, but a lot of people are on that level. And I'm assuming, especially in Georgia, um, if you go outside of the metro area, people will be like, what? No, what? Um, because, but one of the things that we wanted to talk about is when we had Park Cannon, who was the representative um, for Georgia, she did talk about the fact that there was going to be over a billion dollars of a budget cut in the state. And knowing that what that looked like and where that would go and the immediate places that it would go would be for mental health treatment, uh, things like DJ, for Department of Juvenile Health, for DFACs, they're cutting workers, they're cutting teachers' budgets, all of these things that you're like, wait, these are the places that we need that it the you- most. That needs it the most. And the first thing that uh, when we were looking at it, and they're talking about giving incentive pay to police departments. And the question comes into, but why? I, I get that they're risking their lives, but essentially, so are defects workers. They go out without help yeah. to a dangerous situation. So are DJJ workers, because we as probation officers had to go out to homes and sit with people and be threatened. Yeah. I had a kid threaten me like several times. <laughs> I remember another coworker who the kid came by and was like, I know I went to your house. I saw your car, you know, making threats. Um, and it was a power play for sure. But the fact of the matter is, yes, I understand. We came in knowing that this could be dangerous. Right. And things like this happen. But we don't see the same support. I don't know. You tell me. As the government seems to be supporting 
the police department in budgetary levels. Um, so the question is, why are we not seeing that same level of support? And why is it so hard for people to believe that it should happen that way? Because people don't understand defund the police and they're too lazy to Google it. Um, I think it's just, <laughs> it's a lot of information. And you know, that will for ignorance. People are comfortable in what they know and anything that they can find to reinforce what they already know, they're cool with. So far as learning anything new and taking on anyone else's pain, history, culture, that's too much. I don't have time for that. I need to be uh, reinforced in what I already know and feel so I can sleep good tonight. Simple. Right. So with defunding the police, what like I said before, I know you hate this, but we got to rebrand this thing. We have to under- get people to understand what it is and what it means and what that truly looks like. Um, I can remember being a kid in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I can go to the recreation center um, down the street from my house during the summer and be entertained every day for free. <laughs> you know, they had little right. art classes. They had um, basketball. They had uh, uh, frisbee leagues, volleyball, anything that you can think of. They had people there teaching us with us for free, snacks included. We need that kind of stuff right. back because our kids right. are bored. Um, we still have a lot of single family homes, but we don't have any outlets for them. So that's where we need to readjust how we're looking at how to help these kids instead of punitive. We need to be more preventive. And it can't be lame stuff. They're not going to participate in that. They have too many things coming at them. Um, so far as right. with the TikTok and, the, you know, all the things on, you know, on the Internet that keeps them entertained, we have to compete. I like that you sound as old as me when you say the TikTok and the Internets. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, lady. I know. I say it that way, too. I say it that way, too. Randy loves to laugh at me because I say it just like that, too. <laughs> because I hate it so much. I hate it so much. That I, I'm with I you. When Snapchat came out, I'm like, what the hell is this and why? Stop it. Stop it. But it's so entertaining to them, and they all know what it is. And so we need a common form like that. And it has to be constantly changing and updated. We can't be lazy about this because we're talking about our future. Um, So when we talk about defunding the police, we have to really explain what that means and and how it um, can benefit other programs Um, so far as with mental health and with our kids and the residential treatment programs and keeping these kids out of your house. Our kids get bored. You know, they have an older person tell them, hey, if you go in this house and you steal such and such and such, such, you're not just going to get as much time as me. And they're using our kids because they don't have anything else to do. So we have to get people to understand that. Um, understand it, one, care about it is two different things. I can't make anybody care, but at least if I can get the information out there, they won't be as negative towards the whole defunding the police. Maybe we can call it something else, reappropriate. I don't know. Does that That's like probably worse. Does that work? Do that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> can we do yeah, a borrow fund? Can we borrow some money from you can guys? We, can we borrow? No, don't say borrow. We're not going to pay it back. No, <laughs> that is exactly what it is. And, and, the biggest part of this is even though we haven't, we've kind of talked about women's issues in this, this is a women's issue. This is a a, uh, a family issue. This is an issue that we need to talk about as the whole because we do see cases and I've seen people talk about why they don't like social workers because they don't, the people they've interacted with social workers, all they care about is removing children and breaking up families. And the conversation to that is, this is the lesser evil. This is the conversation why we have to talk about why this is not a good option. We can't, and 
Unfortunately, we're talking about it with our presidential election, the lesser evil. What is the better choice or what is not the worst choice, essentially? And that's the problem. We shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to have this conversation. When I worked with families, when I did the facts cases and I did investigations, I worked my ass off, tried to keep them together because for me, seeing kids and knowing these kids were removed from a home was more traumatic oftentimes than the abuse or the neglect that was happening in the home. The only times I would ever remove them is because I could not find the family and because maybe the child had gotten lost or whatever, whatnot, or um, because it was a life and death situation. But the problem with all of this is there is no better option. We have no funding. The funding that used to go to families to help place other kids in other, like with family members, kind of disappeared. And we need to talk about that. Why don't we talk about how families should be helping other, like family members? Um, a lot of people can't afford it. I would have so many grandparents and so many aunts and uncles say, I would love to help. I cannot have another child in my home because I cannot afford it. And because the system has no money, the only way we could give money is by taking custody. And that's a whole other issue about why this is an ugly, ugly thing and why would we need to break down this money and why is it being allotted in billions and billions of dollars to one place that doesn't seem to be improving anything. If you look at the numbers of homicide, if you look at the numbers of theft, if you look at the numbers of crime, it hasn't really gone down. You're 1,000% you're correct. But that just lets us know that the system of oppression is working perfectly. It's working beautifully. It's working exactly the way they set it up to. And I don't think until we um, change the, 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 the guards of the money, that's not going to change. Um, right. That's why we have to, it's kind of like a balancing act. We got to keep our eyes on our kids, but we also have to encourage the adults. Hey, hey, I need you to vote, man. <laughs> I need you not only to vote, but I need you to be a thoughtful voter. I need you to go to the Secretary of State website and actually look up who's running. Look and right, see right. what's on the ballot before you get there. These are things that are, it's not information that's hidden from you, but it's not advertised. And we have to do a better job of educating um, those who are maybe want to, just don't know how to start. Especially our young people that are just now starting to vote in this new election. We got to guide them. We got to. Please don't vote for Kanye. Oh, God. That's just, <laughs> that's just a nightmare on top of a nightmare. And you know I'm all about bottom line. So the moment he said that slavery was a choice, was that was, it was a wrap for me. I was done. <laughs> I was done after that. <laughs> Absolutely, as you should be, as we all should be. Wrap. So there's nothing else good that can come from that vein at all. But that's all um, I would have to say on that. We got to do better with this balancing where we are. Don't forget our kids. Try to move it forward to the future. We got to vote these people out and start anew. And pay attention. And and one of the things that you, as you were saying, look, looking at the ballot, go to the Secretary of State, State site. Look at your local elections. And, and we've said this many a times, which is why we brought on Park Cannon, who was a local representative. I really, and I loved her anyway, but all of those things was because these are the people that are controlling a lot more than you know. The city yeah. council, the Atlanta yeah. city council right now is in control of over $73 million of our budget. And they're talking about allotting that to the police oh, or wow. allowing that and not even having a conversation about why we're doing it. So this is kind of that level of like, you have to pay attention. You have to read those 
balance. You need to pay attention to who's representing you and why. And if you think you can do a better job, please run. Yes, I agree. Oh, my God. Please run. I will give you money. I will give you that. I'm just playing. Uh, I'm not playing. But all of those things, I, I love. I think that's such an important thing. And I, I was, Courtney, this is why I talk to you. And of course, you too, Annie. But like, Courtney and I have been on this track for the past seven years. You know each other seven years? Have been that long? Yeah, we've created our own two-person therapy, trauma therapy group. Um, so this is where I get my trauma out. <laughs> This is where we talk. This is, I think you and I have had the most frank and honest conversations about not only obviously this, but about race, but about um, culture shock. And I being the one of two Asian people, yeah. one of three Asian people in our agency. A minority within the minority. <laughs> but she held it well, though. She's a strong lady. <laughs> I'm, too sassy. I'm too sassy. You can't mess with me. No, you are a word assassin. So people aren't messing with you too often because they already know that you are locked and loaded. <laughs> we do have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, Andy, I'm so sorry. Do you have anything that you want to add as we have completely overtaken? This is what happens. That's, I love it. It's great. I've, I've learned so much. Um, <laughs> I did want to touch on, because um, we have done an episode on nonprofits before, and I know this is not exactly the same as government work, but there are a lot of similarities. And one of the very uh, disheartening statistics about that is women, there is this really high rate of burnout. Okay. Um, is that something that you've seen? Yes. Um, I also worked at a group home before I started any of this. As I was getting my bachelor's, I worked at a um, group home. And the multiple roles that you have to play um, (laughs) in that is astounding. I was the weekend live-in counselor, and that's exactly what I did. I lived there on the weekend. I was a 24-7 type position. I was there with the girls all day, and I was responsible for meals on the weekend. And if they had a weekend job, I had to drive them there. If they wanted to go to the amusement park, I drove them there. I had to issue meds, make sure that no one was fighting. I had to make sure no one was in a corner somewhere because, you know, there's a lot of gay for the state, even in the group homes, um, happening. You have to keep your eyes on so much. And that is the issue with any type of social service job. You're wearing more than one hat because there isn't any backup because the staffing is limited, because most of the funding is going to keeping that whole thing running, making sure the girls can um, have clothes, food, um, getting to um, appointments. And like, yeah, you do receive like your payment from your DJJ and your DFACs, but you still are dependent upon donations. And being that this was um, a Methodist uh, background, we were depended upon donations from the church and trying to make sure that our girls were presentable for the ones who chose to go to church and, you know, interacted well with the people in the church. There's just so much that can go wrong if we don't meet that donation marker. So, and I wasn't really a part of the, the, you know, the money and things like that, but I could see how it affected us if we didn't get it so far as um, what trips we were planning 
versus what we went last year versus where we went the next year, <laughs> things of that nature, whether we got the new van or not, or did we have to stick with the old van and make sure that it was fixed? So, you know, it's, it's a lot of, ah, you have, you really do burn yourself out trying to make sure that you're giving them everything that you need, everything that they need and making sure that you put in your case notes and things like that. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I, I would put in that we, exhaustion, like the literal exhaustion from taxing yourself emotionally, whether you're investing in kids and heartbroken because of death, of failure, of somehow, of um, something going wrong. Um, for us, oftentimes, if a kid became incarcerated after leaving DJJ, that was like a death almost to us. We felt that was our failure somehow. And that in itself was an emotional uh trauma for us. And on top of that, the actual trauma of being attacked, perhaps, or being uh, verbally abused, <laughs> which happened often, often, um, or whether or not that you're trying, you're doing the making the best decision. Because again, this is one of those things that you never know the best decision. And for me, as the ending came, I was like, I am not giving everything I have for this job. And though you shouldn't have to, because it's still just a job, that in itself causes yeah. anxiety and emotional trauma and physical trauma, to be fair. But when I was working at DFACS, I was, had so many panic attacks. I had so many sleepless nights. I was not able, it was nightmare. It was a, a constant nightmare where I would drive or have dreams about my kids. And I still actually have dreams about some of those kids. Um, because you, you're just scared of making the wrong decision and because lives are on the line. It's not like we can come and the, even though this is our job and we can walk away from it, walking away from it may be that we've not, we've neglected kids somehow in between. Like we let them slip because we had to go to, you know, practice here or we're trying to live our lives. So we're going to put our phone down and then you miss that phone call because of whatever. And I know that we didn't as much support as we may have gotten from our immediate bosses, we weren't supported on the bigger picture. And that's also exhausting in itself. And as we talk about police being respected in this level and their qualified immunity, that's a whole other conversation. I actually had to take out insurance as a social worker at DFACS just in case I got sued. That was it. So that I could pay the liability. It came out of my money. So that to me was like, why wouldn't that be a thing? Especially if I'm not the one that caused it, it's half the time the decisions are from the higher ups, whether it's our supervisors, whether it's judges, whether it's court systems, or whether it's, uh, you know, state mandate. There's all of these things. And a part of that is because we do have to have, uh, we do have cases with mental health issues and we don't have any type of resources except for one organization that can only handle so much. And the severity has to be so high that they won't touch it unless it's there. So it has to get to the, already bad point in order for it to be resolved. And all of those things cause a lot of burnout. And I think for women in cell, when you talk about women who, Cordy, you are a caretaker. I'm not necessarily a caretaker because I only got a doggy. <laughs> but Peaches can do. Like, I'm, she's, she's fine. But being a caretaker on top of that, that's another reason why burnout happens because you're being pulled in so many directions that you're not able to do your job. And that if you are someone who is empathetic and have, or, or an empath, that destroys you. That can literally destroy you physically, emotionally, all of those ways. 
You know I'll go off forever. You got to ask questions. But yeah, and I think… And that can be any job when you're not satisfied. Unfortunately for those in human services and all of those and counseling, you being disappointed or dissatisfied often means something is wrong in the system and other people are in harm's way or are being neglected somehow. 100%. Women in this field, we always do what we have to do anyways. (laughs) And so we are teachers. We are mothers. We are the backbone of this whole thing, but we need help. So any help we can get, we take. Good help, that is. (laughs) Sometimes the kind of okay help. (laughs) (laughs) You have to settle for the okay help. Sometimes. (laughs) That brings us to the end of this interview. It was such a delight. I'm so glad that I got to virtually meet Courtney. I know. It made me happy, too. And sorry, when we get to talking. I understand. It's hard to slow down, especially when we get really into the issues. And even though like we may not always agree on like terminology and, and the, the backstories, but we do have a really good open conversation about what does this look like? How does this look like when we break it down? Even though we may not be able to implement it, yeah, we at least have that conversation and being able to refresh and knowing that we are in a good headspace, you know? So I do love that. She's my girl. I love her so much. She's fantastic. I love the people I've been working with. Just so you know, everybody. Everybody, I just have so much love. <laughs> I, I also feel very fortunate for the people I, I work with. Um, and I, it was a very um, enlightening and important conversation to have. And I'm glad we had it. So thank you for arranging it, Samantha. Yeah, if, if any of you listeners have any stories you want to share, if you're also working in this field or similar field, or, you know, we'll, we love hearing from you no matter what. Right. Tell us what's going on, what your thoughts are, how you think things could be changing. Like, there's so many ideas that's not being spoken yet. Let us know what your thoughts are. Yes, yes. Please let us know. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You or on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 